So is Ted Leonsis' intended move of his NBA and NHL team to Virginia in trouble? Uh, lots of news on that yesterday. Eric Flack from Channel 9, WUSA, is going to join us at 11 a.m. He is all over this story. Uh, I start with kind of some Super Bowl follow-up, and a lot of you who tweeted after yesterday's show or reached out to me. This from my guy, Seth in Potomac, who emails me all the time. Kevin, you really didn't go hard enough with deserved criticism of your half-brother Kyle's Super Bowl decisions. I think he's proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's a great offensive coordinator, but as a head coach, maybe not secure enough or cut out to be the big-picture thinker you have to be. I remember the day you had him on your show and questioned him on an in-game decision that you were right on, but he was too stubborn to admit. He doesn't have enough humility to admit when he's wrong, and that's why he'll always come up short. You should have gone harder on him yesterday. Uh, as always, Seth, appreciate the feedback. Um, I've a Seth is a serial emailer. Uh, to the show. He emails me through my podcast website, and I appreciate that, Seth, all the time. And Seth has a lot of takes and has had a lot of takes over the years that I've agreed with, Um, but this one is just off for the most part. Uh, First of all, I do remember the only time I ever had Kyle on the show with me. It was when he was the offensive coordinator, working for his father here, Um, I had asked for Kyle on multiple occasions. I don't remember specifically the details of what I asked him about, but I do remember that there was a bit of an awkward and not necessarily confrontational moment. Tommy remembers it barely well, but I know that he wasn't happy about it. In fact, as much as I love his father and have had Mike on the show I don't know, a half dozen or so times over the years, Kyle never accepted another invitation to come on. I don't know if it's about that. I guarantee you that he doesn't remember. That's only something that the show host would remember. Um, And I don't even remember the details. He shouldn't remember remember that, and he shouldn't care about it. But interestingly, and I think I've talked about this plenty in the past, but from my standpoint, um, there was always – a difference between Kyle and Mike's personalities when they were here anyway. I've had conversations, so many of them, too many of them to count with Mike on and off the air, um, where, you know, even if he was just appeasing or placating me uh, in a conversation, he would never blow it off or would never question or even, you know, try to make you feel foolish for a suggestion. He's just different. And, Those of us who have had a chance to get to know him a little bit, and, you know, in the big picture, it's really just getting to know him a little bit, you know, as a media member and as a guy who is a coach in this market. But Mike was always, and this may come as a surprise to many of you, um, but he was always and still is incredibly likable. You know, I know that he didn't come off as that at times when he was here, But he's very smart, and he's also got a level of humility that maybe Kyle doesn't have. 
I don't know because I don't know Kyle at all. Um, But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. So first of all, to Seth's email, to suggest that a man who has been a head coach for seven years and has coached his team to the Super Bowl twice in those seven seasons, taken his team to the NFC Championship game four times in those seven years, has an overall record of 13 games above 500 and an 8-4 and postseason record, meaning that he's coached in 12 playoff games in seven seasons, to suggest that Kyle Shanahan, with those accomplishments in just seven years as a head coach, is a great offensive coordinator but perhaps not cut out to be a head coach, is one of the silliest takes I've ever heard. He's getting questioned a lot. There is a lot of Kyle Shanahan discussion in the wake of a third Super Bowl that he's been significantly involved in as a coordinator, two as a head coach, with three of the seven all-time 10-point or greater blown leads coming with him on the sideline. Look, there are many excellent head coaches, not just in football, but in every sport, that have flaws or areas of weakness but the rest of what they are about is so overwhelmingly good that the net is so positive you'd never pass on it. The net with Kyle is he's a brilliant offensive mind, a brilliant play caller, game planner, and the net result has been winning and lots of it. You know, that's Kyle. Kyle, like a lot of coaches, may have a flaw or two, but he doesn't have a lot of them. There are examples, Seth, of what you're looking for trying to describe, but it ain't Kyle. You know, Josh McDaniels, maybe. You know, Norv Turner. Um, A guy like Dan Henning, who for years was considered to be a great offensive coordinator and never, never cut it as a head coach. But not Kyle. Come on. I mean, this guy, without a legit top-tier quarterback, has coached his team to within a play or two of winning two Super Bowls and within a play or two of getting to two more. He's 44. He's got plenty of time to grow in the areas that perhaps he is, you know, at the very least slightly flawed in. But even if he doesn't win a Super Bowl, even if he never gets to another Super Bowl, Kyle's been one of the best head coaches in the game for several years running. Um, Seth, specific to your criticism of me for not being critical enough of Kyle uh, in the wake of the Super Bowl yesterday, I'm not sure what show you were listening to. I thought I went pretty hard on Kyle yesterday. I think he made and said this. I think he made the wrong decision by taking the ball in overtime. I do. Despite the analyticals out there that suggest it's more of a coin flip on what to do if you win the toss in a playoff overtime game, I think it was a disadvantage to his team to take the ball and give Patrick Mahomes the opportunity. The opportunity of A, knowing what they needed score-wise, and B, giving him, him in particular, four downs if necessary to do it. I think in that spot, and actually I think in most spots, it's an advantage to get the ball second in overtime based on the postseason overtime rules as they exist now. I also think, and said this yesterday, 
I think he missed out on an opportunity to gain an extra offensive possession at the end of the first half by not taking timeouts on defense quickly enough. This is something I've actually seen him miss on before. Um, And perhaps even more than the decision to take the ball in overtime, not calling timeouts at the end of the half on defense, I don't think, you know, I don't think there's any pushback to. I've said it many times in the past, but it's pretty simple. What's better, more offensive possessions in a game or less? Well, more is the answer. Um, And for whatever reason, it was not important to him in the Super Bowl. I've actually been critical of Kyle in the past on this. I remember specifically a game this year. They were playing the Giants early in the season on Thursday night football. They ended up winning the game very easily, but it was a competitive game in the first half. And he took all three timeouts uh, timeouts he had to the locker room when the Giants were lining up to kick a 57-yard field goal. Uh, I, 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 it may have been Gano. Was Gano the, the giant kicker this year? I think he was. Um, maybe he got hurt at some point. I don't know. He did. He got um, hurt at some point. Yeah, but but if he had, you know, if he had missed it, they would have had no time to do anything with the ball because he didn't use his timeouts on defense. And I remember being critical and saying the next day, Kyle needs help in this area. This is not an area that comes naturally to him for some reason. And on Sunday, he totally blew it at the end of the first half. This was much more of a non-debate situation than the taking of the ball in overtime, although I don't think that was much of a debate. But barring something that we don't know, like, you know, uh, Purdy's thumb was hurting and they wanted to get to the locker room to check it out and they didn't want to put the ball back into his hands because they something crazy that we didn't know, more likely than not, he just didn't get it right at the end of the first half. They had a chance to get the ball back with 55 or so seconds left in the first half after Kansas City kicked a field goal by using their timeouts on defense the right way. But instead, he takes two timeouts into the locker room with him and no extra possession. That's a terrible error. That is one of those that isn't, you know, oh, Sheehan's off on clock management again. He don't know. That's like everybody understands that. Everybody understands more chances with the football are better than less. And he didn't give his team a chance for an extra possession at the end of the first half. Um, This, by the way, seems to be as it is with many coaches in the league. Um, This is, you know, I think the miss clock management-wise for most of the coaches that have problems with it. It is when to take the timeouts on defense, when you can't control how quickly a play is run. You can't control the clock because you don't have the ball. I think that's ultimately the biggest weakness. But there is no way that barring something out of the ordinary that we don't know about that San Francisco shouldn't have wanted and gotten another possession at the end of the first half with a chance to add to a 10-3 to lead. You know, it's like, All of those Dan Campbell Detroit decisions in the NFC title game that were debatable, the fourth downs, the one you couldn't debate was the decision to run the ball with under a minute to go in the game, which essentially forced a timeout and for all intents and purposes ended any reasonable chance his team had to win the game. That was not, that's not a debatable decision. 
just like Kyle not using timeouts at the end of the first half, not debatable, really. The fourth down decisions he made, Campbell made, debatable. Kyle's decision to take the ball, I don't think it's that debatable, but the analytics say it's debatable, but not at the end of the first half. But look, there were many reasons, Seth, that the 49ers lost the Super Bowl on Sunday. But I totally agree, and I think I said yesterday, a few of the decisions made by the head coach were near the top of the list as to why they didn't win the game. Let me add to that, too. You know, we I don't think we saw all these reports, Denton, yesterday during the radio show, but there were so many reports of 49er players coming out after the game and saying they didn't know the new playoff overtime rules. That's not a great look for Kyle. First of all, I was thinking about this uh, after uh, after the show yesterday and I was reading this. Imagine that they had scored on that opening possession. You know, that, that Chris Jones wasn't set free like he was on that third down at the nine-yard line in overtime, and he threw a touchdown pass to either Jennings or Ayuk, who, by the way, was wide open. Imagine that they had scored a touchdown. Given the fact that so many of their players said they had no idea what the new overtime rules were, they would have stormed the field as if they had won the Super Bowl. We got robbed of that experience. It would have been an all-time meme. Oh, my God. It would have been so embarrassing. I mean, it would have been – we would have seen that based on what they said after the game. That they did not know the new rules, meaning that Kansas City was good, was guaranteed a possession. If he throws a touchdown pass to Jennings, or look at the play, Ayuk is wide open. But Chris Jones blew up the play. As by the way, he seemed to have blown up like 15 plays in the game. If they scored a touchdown, I mean, they're storming the field thinking they won the game. Uh, uh, stop. First of all, you got an extra point, and then, oh, by the way, 15 is going to get the ball again. Um, One quick thing about this. I've heard a lot of people suggest uh, that if you are going to take the ball, um, which was not an advantage, then you should have been thinking that touchdown is your only goal. And on fourth and four, rather than kicking the field goal, you should have gone for it. I I don't actually get that logic at all. Why would you go for fourth and four? I know that analytically it was kind of a slight advantage to go for it, um, but you're not, you know, I, I, I w- it's not that I wouldn't have had a problem if they had chosen to go for it. It's that, to me, that's not a cut-and-dried thing. Like, taking the ball doesn't mean you have to score a touchdown. You can kick a field goal and then hold them to a field goal. And by the way, the game was a game of field goals, basically, on both ends. And then you would have gotten what you – thought you were making the right decision based on a third possession in a tie game only needing a field goal. But anyway, um, look, the Chiefs talked about – the Chief players talked about how Andy Reid had laid out all of the possibilities of the new overtime rule over the last two weeks, and clearly Kyle didn't. You know, maybe Kyle was just like, look, what are the chances of this? I mean, you you can't approach it that way, you know. Um, or maybe I don't want to burden them with things that you know may go over their head to begin with. You know, we'll just deal with it if it happens. 
okay, that's fine, but don't you have to get the whole team around you? There's there's two to three minutes, I think, in between the end of regulation, the coin toss, everything else. Don't you get the whole team around you and say, hey, just so everybody knows, this the new rules are in place. Both teams get a chance at the football. So even if we go down and score a touchdown, it's not over. Um, I don't know. I know he said he had it figured out that the analytics of an odd possession overtime was the overriding reason for taking the ball first. But his team apparently had no clue. And it makes me wonder whether or not he and his staff put a ton of time into studying this possibility as well. Remember, this is not a Super Bowl rule. This is a playoff rule. It started last year in the wake of the year before the Bills losing that crushing 42-36 overtime game at Arrowhead when Josh Allen threw Gabe Davis a touchdown pass with 13 seconds to go, walked off the field thinking they were going to win, Kansas City gets butt-current range, ties the game, wins the toss, and goes down and scores a touchdown, and Buffalo never sees the ball again. And the NFL said, that's enough of that. You know, we Brady had it in the AFC title game against the Chiefs in Mahomes' first AFC title game, and that game in particular was, nope, we're now going to guarantee a possession for both teams. And so last year's postseason was the first year of it. This year, the second year of it, it's not just a Super Bowl rule. It's a playoff. It's a postseason rule. And by the way, the Niners in this postseason – could have had three overtime games. Green Bay, they beat by three. Detroit, they beat by three. And then, of course, the Super Bowl game went to overtime and they lost it. But whatever, it's over. You know, the bottom line in all of this is the 49ers didn't have Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs did. Big difference. Um, This from Rom, um, and I got similar tweets to this one. Just explain it better. What exactly would have happened if Kansas City had let the clock run out in overtime without scoring? I do think that that was a, you know, I didn't know until you told me yesterday that um, that 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 Tony Romo actually suggested that a touchdown by the 49ers would have ended the game. So so he didn't know the rules. But it, but they did explain why Andy Reid wasn't calling timeouts at the end of the first overtime. So simply put, in the postseason, when you go to overtime, there is a 15-minute first overtime, a 15-minute second overtime, and they mirror an, an actual game. So the first overtime is like first quarter. The second overtime is like second quarter. So at the end of the first overtime, if the clock runs out and the game's not over, you just go to the second overtime and you run a play from the same position in which the first overtime ended. You just flip sides of the field. And the reason that you flip sides of the field is for outdoor games in particular. Wind could be a factor. Field conditions could be a factor, et cetera. And so it evens it out if you go to a second overtime. Now, at the end of the second overtime, you get a two-minute warning, just like you do at the end of the second quarter, and that's the end of the half. If You've got to use your timeouts. You can't let the clock run out and expect you're going to a third overtime with the ball in the same spot. The third overtime becomes like the third quarter. And then if you ever got to a fourth overtime, it would be like the fourth quarter, and you got to go deep into the rules. But if a game went to four overtimes without a winner – then you flip a coin again 
to start the overtime game over again. I found that in looking through the rules. Like, if there's no winner at the end of the fourth overtime period, there will be another coin toss, and play will continue until a winner is declared. We've never had that, obviously. The longest games we've ever had um, were late into the second quarter games. The longest game in NFL history is Chiefs-Dolphins playoffs, 1971. You know, that game went 82 minutes in total, 82 minutes plus in total. Um, And that's still uh, the longest game in NFL history. So that went towards, you know, almost the end of the second overtime. This one went to the very end of the first overtime. By the way, we didn't even talk about this, but after a game of so many stops and so many punts, You know, we had a Super Bowl that, first of all, was an incredibly long game, not just because it's Super Bowl halftime, et cetera. It was a long game. We had a game in which Kansas City punted five times. San Francisco punted five times. We had 10 punts in the game. Um, And then we got to overtime, and we only had two possessions, basically. We had a possession in which the 49ers, you know, uh, burned seven plus minutes of the clock, and then Kansas City did the same. 26 plays, no punts in overtime. Um, Still, uh, what a game, ultimately, the Super Bowl was. And how about this? Have you seen the odds, Denton? For next year's Super Bowl, you know, at the end of the Super Bowl, you get the you get next year's odds, you get the all too early power rankings, but the 49ers are favorites again. They're plus five hundred. Bet MGM. Kansas City's the second pick at plus seven hundred. Really, I have I haven't looked, so I I was I was, well, I had a question on to where Washington was was Washington's going to be. got the third longest odds of the thirty two teams um they are at plus 15,000 all right 150 to one only the uh Patriots and Panthers have longer odds <laughs> than Washington but I, I you know at what I actually was thinking that the Ravens were going to be the favorites so was I what are they huh? what are they six to one eight to one um they are hold on I had that open a second ago bear with me uh the Ravens are plus 850 so the, the 49ers are plus 500, the Chiefs are plus seven, uh, 700, the Ravens plus 850, then it's the Bills and Lions at 12 to 1 plus 1200. The Bengals are 14 to 1 at plus 1400. Then it's Cowboys Eagles. After last year's Super Bowl, the Chiefs, were the Chiefs the preseason favorites? I believe so. Yeah. I think so. It was either them or Philly. Philly was super high up at the end of the Super Bowl last year cuz all their guys were under contract. Right. So, um, you know, th- those all too early NFL power rankings are out all over the place too, and they're not very complimentary of Washington either for the 2024 season. 30, 31st on ESPN's all too early power rankings for next year with the Panthers as the only team that's worse. Look, I, I don't really care about that stuff. I mean – we haven't had free agency. We haven't had a draft. Houston was in a similar spot, remember, last year at this time. Um, 
Why would Washington be favorably thought of at this point? They were arguably the worst team in the league last year. They, they certainly were the worst team at the end of the year, and they're likely going to start a rookie quarterback next season. So they're not going to get a lot of preseason pub. But I think, you know, in, in reality, the free agency opportunity in particular with all the cap space that they have, they'll have a chance to fill several holes in free agency. The draft is more of a who knows right now, especially in year one. I mean, I think we do know that there will be a quarterback selected and that that quarterback will likely get a chance to play. I mean, from the jump, I guess time will tell on that. Um, but, uh, But Washington should be able through free agency if they do it right with Adam Peters and, by the way, Martin Mayhew and Dan Quinn, et cetera, at the helm, um, they should be able to fill some holes in free agency. The Chiefs, by the way, and just thinking about their team and the opportunity to, to, to do something that's never been done, which would be to win three straight Super Bowls. The Packers of the mid-60s won an NFL championship in 65, and then they won the first Super Bowl and the second Super Bowl, so they actually won three in a row. Um, in uh, in the mid '60s, but nobody's ever won three Super Bowls uh, in a row. Uh, the closest, really, were the '90 49ers, who had won in '88 and in '89, and they were the best team in '90 as well. They beat Washington, by the way, in the divisional round playoff, and then they lost a gut wrenching, gut wrenching NFC Championship game. I think one of the best. NFL playoff games I've ever watched in my lifetime of watching NFL playoff football when Matt Barr kicked five field goals and the Giants beat the 49ers 15 to 13 at Candlestick in the NFC Championship game. Uh, And that was the game in which you had a strip of Roger Craig at the end fumbled LT. Uh, jumped on it, or either LT stripped it and jumped on it, or somebody else, maybe it was Leonard Marshall, stripped it. LT got on it, and um, and uh, the forty uh, and, the, and the Giants ended up getting into field goal range, and that was the year they beat Buffalo in Buffalo's Super Bowl um, loss with wide right uh, at the end. Um, but that was the, cl- the 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 closest I think. The 49ers were a dominant team of that stretch, and they had a chance to win three. I certainly would not count the Chiefs out. I think the most important thing in this offseason for any team in the NFL is the Chiefs getting a deal done with Chris Jones because he may be – I mean, is this – maybe this is an exaggeration. This could be major exaggerating here on my part. But other than Patrick Mahomes, I think you could make the case that Chris Jones is their most valuable player. I would agree with that. He's a more big, than Kel- he's a, more than Kelsey. Yeah, he's a big time. He always shows up in big games. Always. Even he was so sacked. dominant. Look, look, you you're a PFF uh, customer. I I'm fascinated to see what his PFF grade was for Sunday. Will you tell me what it what it is? Uh, yeah, give me a. Second it had to, to be the highest of any chief. Although McDuffie was probably way up there. And Sneed was probably way up there. Boy, McDuffie is good. I had never really paid attention to him. Because he's first-team All-Pro. He's first-team All-Pro, but just watching some of the plays he made, he was always. it felt like he was always in phase, and he perfectly times his jumps 
every time a ball is thrown his direction. I because like we didn't see. It's not like he was picked on against Buffalo. I think the lack of seeing him should have been the clue as to how good he was. And then Baltimore was attacking the other side, but hot damn, they went at him on a Sunday, and he backed up why he's a first team All Pro. Yeah, yeah, he he was great. Um, did they? I'm, I'm trying to think. I know Chris Jones is an unrestricted free agent. What I can't remember is I remember he was a holdout, remember last year, or it was they were late getting him signed. Did they get him signed? To Was it a franchise tag? I think it was a one-year deal. Okay, because I think the franchise tag for D tackles is like the Aaron Donald number at $30 million or whatever a year, $31 million a year. He's going to have to get Aaron Donald money. He deserves it. I, I, he he was the most disruptive player in the game Sunday. Did you find his PFF grade? I'm just curious. So it looks like his PFF grading is 81.7. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's who was the highest? Was it was it McDuffie? Um, no, it was uh, what they have a bunch of defensive linemen. That were really high up. Leo Chanel at ninety two was the he best. he had a force fumble, didn't he? Yes, he did. I don't know what the snap count was for him. Mike Pennell was eighty two point five as well. Okay. Uh, Travis Kelsey was seventy eight. He was the best offensive player for the Niners. Then Trent Williams was eighty seven. Trent Williams was eighty seven. Really, with the two penalties in particular, those you know those were tough penalties. I would bet I'm I'm pulling up the snap count because I want to see if Chris Jones even came out of the game. Um, oh yeah, he did. He played. Um, he played on seventy three percent of the snaps. Seventy three percent of the snaps he played. They 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 have. I think they've typically had less rotation in their defensive front. Like Karloftis played eighty three percent of the snaps. Um. He was awesome, too. Uh, Just thinking about next year, though. Like, the Chiefs, if they don't get Chris Jones signed and back, they're not going to be the same defensively. That is a massive re-signing. Sneed's a a, a free agent, too. I'd let him walk ten times before I'd let Jones walk if if you have to choose between the two. How old is Jones? Is he 30 yet? Yeah, I believe he's 30. Mm-hmm. Um, he's No, he's 29. So he will turn 30 by the time the next season starts, but he's 29. Okay. Still think we watched such a memorable Super Bowl game. It really was a memorable game. Uh, and, you know, those that described it as not a well-played game um, – the first half wasn't well played. I'll, I'll grant you that. There were a lot of errors. But the second half was so well coached, so well played, so physical, so hard hitting. Game just went on and on and just got better and better and better. And, uh, and yeah, we're going to remember Mahomes for a long time. All right. Uh, I want to get to updating Washington's coaching hires. Dan Quinn super busy. Uh, and once again, man, this, this idea that he, that, that Quinn's, you know, a distant, you know, down the list choice. I think he's proving with the hiring of this coaching staff right now, although a lot of you don't like the O-line coach, um, 
that this is one of the reasons he was a top choice candidate. We'll get to that next again. This big news about Ted's move to Virginia of the Caps and the Wizards got some pushback yesterday from a local Virginia state senator. Um, We're going to have Eric Flack from uh, WUSA Channel 9 on the show at 11 a.m. Eric's all over the story. We'll get uh, up to date on it with him. All right, Kevin Sheehan Show, the Team 980, theteam980.com. We're also free and live on the Odyssey app. All right, all right, all right. What do you got? So, as expected, uh, the Super Bowl drew the largest audience of any Super Bowl, of any television program uh, in the history of television. According to Nielsen, uh, the game averaged 123.4 million viewers across uh, all television and streaming platforms. That shattered last year's mark in the Philadelphia-Kansas City Super Bowl with a 7% increase. But I noticed this. Like, First of all, um, the game was televised by CBS, Nickelodeon, Univision, streamed on Paramount Plus, as well as many of the NFL's digital platforms. But Nielsen also said that at one point, there were 202.4 million people watching at least a part of the game across all of the networks. That was a 10% jump from last year. I mean, that is essentially, what's our population now? 350 million? Is it 350? It might be less than that. Some, something like that. What's, what's the U.S. population right now? It might be uh, population, U.S. 331.9 million as of 2021. I guess that's the last census on the population. I don't know. So you're talking about 60% of the country, 60%. Keep in mind, the population includes very old people who are unfortunately non-compass at this point. It includes babies and, and very young children. And it includes a lot of people that just don't give a crap about sports and probably had no idea it was going on. There are people like that. I actually know people like that that only know, oh, yeah, it is that Super Bowl thing. 60-plus percent of people tuned in for at least part of the game. That's insane. Um, There is some sort of, you know, credit being given to Taylor Swift for this one. I I I want to get I'll get John Orend on the show uh this week at some point to talk about that because I can see where a lot of the games during the regular season that involved the Chiefs where you had a lot of people who don't watch football but are massive Taylor Swift fans are then watching those games for the first time but don't most of those people probably know the Super Bowl's going on and watch a Super Bowl, go to a party for a Super Bowl? I think the Super Bowl did more for Taylor Swift than Taylor Swift did for the Super Bowl. I'm not suggesting that Taylor Swift didn't do a lot for the NFL during the course of the regular season. But at one point, at, 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 there were 202 million people watching this thing. That's just insane. The NFL, man... The NFL as a business in this country, as a consumer um, business, um, is just 
incredible. The NFL now, I'm looking this up too because I want to be sure of this. Um, in re- uh, I think they are, are they, have they exceeded 20 billion in overall revenues now as a business? Um, uh, as of in 2022, they were 18.6 billion. 18.6 billion. So I imagine that if they're not over 20, they're close. Mm. I remember Goodell saying at some point he expected it to be north of $25 billion. That was a few years ago, and I forget what year he projected that to be. 2027. P- 2027? Yeah. And what was the number he said? Was it $30 billion? No, he said 25. You were right. $25 billion by 27. Um, and people rolled their eyes at that because at, at the time, I think the business was like $9 billion. So you were talking about, you know, almost tripling, you know, revenue. Um, But, man, it's on the way to that. Uh, You know, it may not get to exactly his number, but it's not that far off. I forget when the next TV deals come up. But, you know, with CBS, with Fox, with NBC, with Disney, ESPN, ABC, with Amazon, with, you know, YouTube, with DirecTV, who who am I leaving out? NBC and Peacock are the same. Um, I mean, there are more players, I'm sure, that will jump in and say, I just want, you know, three games, and I'll pay, you know, a half a billion for that or a billion dollars for that. It's insane. Netflix is going to jump in at some point. I don't know when, but they will jump in. Yeah. This is a good conversation to have with somebody who's much more – um, in tune with all of this. I'm going to reach out, make a note of that, uh, Denton. I'll reach out to John Orand and, and have him on because he loves this stuff. He's all over it. It's just there's no other there's no other product. You know, um, obviously, you know, the, the Cokes and the Pepsis and the McDonald's and the Walmarts, et cetera. But uh, in terms of like a consumer entertainment product, there's nothing that comes close to the NFL. I mean, that is the single biggest platform for any kind of exposure that you want in this country is that three and a half to four hours on Sunday night. And by the way, during the course of the season, it's not too paltry either, the audience size. Amazing to think that at at one point in time, within the last 30 years, you could buy an NFL team for something much less than a billion dollars. I mean, Snyder purchased the Washington team, and it was a massive purchase for $800 million in 1999. And then you go back, and I mean, hell, if you get to the 70s, you can find NFL teams that were available for a couple of million bucks. I mean... <laughs> One of the all-time greatest returns on investment is anybody that bought an NFL team sort of pre-2000. Well, probably pre-2015. I wonder whether or not it will just continue to soar in value. This is the – I mean, I'm getting sidetracked from what I wanted to talk about, and I'll get to the Redskins coaching uh, changes here momentarily, the commanders coaching changes here momentarily. I – the $6 billion price tag that Josh Harris and Mitchell Rails and the 20-plus limited partners paid for it, you know, I don't know, given that he was the only one willing to go to that price, I wonder whether or not 
this was the top of the market. Now, what would change that immediately would be the availability of these teams to sovereign or to foreign money. You know, if the Saudis and 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 big time oil rich magnates in different places of the world could buy in on an NFL team, they might just pay anything just to get in. So that that that's the key for somebody like Josh Harris, if he's even thinking about an exit, which why would he be? This is, I think, a pride and joy in his prized possession. Um, but uh, I'm sure some of his investors would love the opportunity for a return in the next five years. We'll see. Anyway, I'm sidetracked. Uh, I'll get to the Skins coaching changes. Lots of news on that front, including some breaking news this morning. We'll get to that when we come back. Vinci and Show, the Team 980, the Team980.com. We are also free and live on the Odyssey app. Big upset last night in college hoops. Number six, Kansas, loses by nearly 30. They got trucked by Texas Tech on the road, 79-50. to Kansas, uh, just about all of their losses, with the exception of one, have come on the road. Great at home, terrible when they leave Fog Allen. In the NBA, Wizards fall to the Mavericks, 112-104. to A revenge game for Daniel Gafford. He goes for 16 points and 17 rebounds. Denny Avdia led the Wizards with 25 points. Another bad game for Jordan Poole. He went 1-12 from the field for just three points. He's averaging 8.8 points per game in these six games in the month of February. Wizards off today. They're in action on Wednesday in New Orleans. Caps host the Avalanche tonight. Ovi's looking to make it six games in a row by putting the puck in the back of the net. Puck drops at seven. You can hear it on our sister station, 106.7 The Fan. And and that's what's trending. From Jay on Twitter, I saved this one for post-Super Bowl. Quinn was an uninsp- uninspired hire, Kev. You've been too high on him simply because you had it first that Quinn was a leading candidate. Uh, get off that. This is retread central. Um, thank you, Jay, for the tweet uh, and some content here. Um, yeah, he was not anything other than one of their leading candidates. And you'll never get me off that because, yes, I knew that three weeks before they hired him, and there was no reason for me to know that because they were not in a crunch in terms of, oh, my God, people are starting to criticize our coaching search. Uh, They like Quinn from the jump, and they like Quinn from the jump in part because – of what he was able to present to them, you know, something that Ben Johnson didn't even get to, um, you know, the get to the opportunity of doing. And if he had, I don't know that they would have hired him anyway. I mean, ultimately, the Ben Johnson falling apart thing was, for me, a bullet dodged, but I don't even think it was a bullet that was heading their way. Um, I don't think they needed to dodge it. I think they were going through a process which took them time and they wanted to be thorough. And this is a group that's going to be meticulous and thorough. And whether or not somebody was super high on him at the beginning or not, and I'm not disputing that, ultimately as the process went on, went along, Quinn became a favorite. Uh, and Johnson was just a curiosity. And they never got a chance to satisfy that curiosity because he texted them on a plane ride to Detroit. Uh, that he wasn't available. Um, Like I've said before, not the most professional way to do it. Hopefully there was some sort of conversation from Ben Johnson, uh, you know, with Ben Johnson when they got to Detroit, apologizing for handling it that way. 
um, you know, he's obviously not a guy ready to be a head coach, and he'll learn from that lesson for sure. But I think one of the reasons that Dan Quinn's the head coach is because unlike some of the younger guys and the first-time guys with, by the way, what would have been a first-time NFL owner and a first-time NFL general manager, putting together a staff is a challenge. It's not the easiest thing in the world. And Dan Quinn's been in the league for 27 years, and he's putting together a staff. You know, I don't know if you get Kingsbury to drop the Raiders' pursuit and say, no, I'd rather go, you know, be the OC in Washington with Dan Quinn. You know, I don't know if you get Joe Witt Jr. to leave the Cowboys organization, even though he's close to Dan Quinn, to come. I don't know if you get Brian Johnson to take this gig as, you know, a subordinate, if you will, to Kingsbury when he may have had better opportunities to become an OC faster again. Um, if it's not for Dan Quinn, uh, I think this. I think what you're seeing right now. They hired Ken Norton Jr. yesterday. He's always been a good coach. Um, they hired John uh, Pagano today, senior defensive assistant. They hired David Ray as a tight ends coach. Now, the one hire everybody seems to be having a problem with, and I can't speak to this right now, is this Bobby Johnson who coached the Giants' offensive line last year. And they ended up with 85 sacks taken. I mean, old Danny DeVito took like, you know, 37 of the 85 in four starts. I mean, the, the dude just was, I mean, he made some plays, DeVito did, Tommy DeVito did. But he, he was at a pace that far exceeded even Sam Howell's pace. If had he been a 17-game starter, he would have crushed uh, the, um, uh, the, the David uh, Palmer record. David Palmer, not David Palmer. Who had the sack record? Why am I blanking? The Houston quarterback that we talked about all year. David Carr. Um, David Carr, thank you. Uh, Anyway, so here are the updates uh, since we last spoke. We talked about Bobby Johnson during the show yesterday. They hired David Ray, tight ends coach, reuniting him with Cliff Kingsbury. Kingsbury worked with him in Arizona. They hired Uh, Former Raiders and Seahawks defensive coordinator, Ken Norton Jr. Yep, the son of the Ken Norton heavyweight. You know, we've known Ken Norton Jr. forever. He's with the Cowboys. He played for the Cowboys, won won a Super Bowl or two with the Cowboys. Um, He's been most recently uh, in, uh, in Westwood at UCLA. Now he's reunited with Quinn, who he coached with in Seattle. Um, and then Pagano was a former Broncos assistant under Vic Fangio um, and has been a hot name in this cycle, had multiple teams interested. He's the former Chargers and Raiders defensive coordinator. He's joining Washington staff. Uh, the Bobby Johnson hire, there's something there that they must like. Um, you know, they had multiple quarterbacks playing. In New York this year, it was Daniel Jones, it was Tyrod Taylor, and then it was Tommy DeVito. They had a lot of issues, and especially offensive line issues. If you think Washington's offensive line was a mess, which it wasn't per sort of the advanced numbers, the Giants just were ravaged all season long with injuries along the offensive line. Um, So there you go. Uh, You've got a staff that has experience that has up and comers but m- more importantly you know isn't just a an absolute you know caravan from Dallas 
uh, that or, or from Seattle. There are certainly relationships in the past that play into this. But Dan Quinn's ability, because he's such a good coach for people in the league and such a good guy to people in the league, um, is putting together, I think, a professional staff that maybe a Bobby Slowick, forget Ben Johnson because he didn't want to coach, a Bobby Slowick or a Mike McDonald perhaps may not have been able to do in year one as a head coach. I think they got the guy that makes the most sense for them. I really do. Uh, can't wait for the games to start. All right. Uh, yesterday, news broke that Ted's move of the Wizards and the Caps to Northern Virginia was in trouble. Eric Flack's been covering this story for WUSA TV9. He'll join us next. It's the Kevin Sheehan Show on the Team 980, the Team980.com. We're also free and live on the Odyssey app.